2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The great stock shock, markets sink to new lows for the year. We will debate the damage and discuss how much more pain might be ahead with the Investment Committee, of course. Joining me for the hour today... Kerry Firestone, Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. With me right here on set, Liz Young, Joe Terranova. Let's do what we always do first. Let's check the markets here at 12 noon in the east. I said we have new intraday lows um, for today. The Dow, the S&P, the NAS, the NASDAQ 100. Very closely watching yields today. Look, look at the 10-year note yield at 334. That's the highest since May of 2011. The two years, the highest since 07. So that remains a key part of the story today as well. Bitcoin's getting crushed, as you probably know by now. The 210 spread inverted for the first time since April. That remains a headline that we need to discuss. I want to begin with you, Joe. Um, for somebody who told me a week or so ago, maybe not even a full week, that you were positioning yourself for offense, little offense. Where are you today?
3: Well. I think to I mean, have you
2: reversed that or? Well,
3: here's what's important in that. And I and I think it was very clear both on overtime and with you on the halftime show yeah. in, in speaking towards this. I, I have never said go buy those hyper growth stocks. I don't want to be in hyper growth stocks. Right. I said play a little offense and do it with a very healthy respect to valuation. And I also said I'm just looking here in the near term. Where can I capture two and a half percent in the market? I'm not looking with a long-term lens at where we might be. Is this the bottom? Where are we going to be a year from now? Just what's in front of me. I know Pete's on the show. Pete's done a great job talking about what's the trade. Well, that trade on Thursday afternoon was negated without question. Um, I was able to sell some S&P futures to hedge the risk that I had in the market. And I think that's the important lesson for the viewers right now. If you're going to take risk. In your portfolio. If you're going to accept risk in any form of trade, it has to be well defined and it has to be small.
2: Not a lot of risk being taken uh, anywhere. That's for sure today. Pete, I'll go to you since Joe uh, mentioned you. And the fact of the matter is, there's really nowhere to hide today. Energy, discretionary materials, Mm -hmm. tech, so they're all getting ripped. By the way, the XLE is down nearly 10% since last Wednesday alone. And that's just stunning in and of Mm -hmm. itself. But about this put buying that you're seeing today, Pete.
4: Yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, Scott, I would say this. Um, there hasn't been a place to hide for a while now. I mean, for the most part, this market has been moving to the downside with almost every single sector every single day getting into the red when we've had this sell-off. Obviously, Thursday and Friday was 1,500 points at another, what, 600, 800 points today to that downside move that we've had over the last call it two and a half sessions, barely two and a half sessions. But yeah, they were buying puts last week. We talked about that on Friday. They were buying spider puts in huge size. They bought 100,000 of the puts, doing pretty well off of that. We also had uh, some put buying as well in the IWM later in the day. That was something that's really started to, really moved to the downside. As a matter of fact, take a look at that one, Scott. Look at the IWM and the look at what caps. the percentage loss today was. Okay. Yes. The 2,000, Russell 2,000. Yeah. We're talking Russell, about what? Yeah. Four and a half percent four to percent. the downside?
2: Four percent. Russell is the worst of the okay. majors.
4: Yeah. And and I can tell you we had huge put buying in there when, on Friday. And today we're seeing those returns. As a matter of fact, the first two trades that happened today that we were seeing an unusual was the spider? They were buying more spider puts, about 28,000 of those, and then they they decided to go after 30,000 of uh, of the IWM puts. So they just continue to come after these. And now there's even the EFA. And if people are not familiar with that, it's another ETF, and that's where we see a lot of this paper, Scott. These ETFs are really seeing the sizable paper. But in the, in this one, the EFA, it's basically everything out uh, in the world except the U.S. and Canada. And that's another one where we're seeing huge put buying. We've seen that in the past as well. So there's no doubt that that is the, I guess, the narrative of the day for me. And going back to last week is mm-hmm. they're buying puts expecting this thing to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And last week we did talk about this. We were talking about what was really shifting in the markets. It was the 10-year, but it was really the two-year as well. Because when you think about it, Scott, May 27th, the 2 years is trading 248. Now, here we are above 3.1. I mean, uh, that shows you the velocity of that move as well. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, what's really just hammering the markets right now.
2: We got 3.20 on the two year right now. That's a better than five, almost a five and a quarter percent move. Uh, and Pete's right. 10%, uh, the, the 10 year is five and two thirds percent. It gives you an idea as Pete's dead on in this velocity of the move higher in, in rates today. Carrie, Put your years of of experience of of watching these markets and running portfolios on display for for folks and give me just an idea of how you're thinking about what what happened on Friday carrying into today and where you think it may go from here.
5: So I, I think the most notable thing is the lack of faith right now that investors have in what they've been told, what they've been told by the Fed, what they've been told by the Treasury Department, what they've been told by companies and the management so that's sort of been thrown out the window because we can't seem to trust that the numbers that the Fed are looking at have been looking at which remember they used that word transitory for a very long time they've stopped using that and now we've got lots of inflation much more than anyone really expected that we saw in those numbers on Friday and Janet Yellen and the Treasury Department again looking at the same numbers these people are, are academics they spend all their time coming through data. It hasn't helped. You, haven't, you have companies that are now taking down numbers, starting to hedge on guidance. That's causing people to be scared. I'm worried that what we've been hearing about unemployment has been wrong. The unemployment number being 3.6% has been one of the high points, one of the places that you could really hang your hat and say, wow, this can't be a recession if we have so few people unemployed. Maybe those numbers are wrong and companies Mm. have been overhiring just the way they overbought inventory. So what's the good news? So the good news is that if we take those numbers down on earnings for next year, instead of 250, look at 235 on the S&P, We are And multiply that by 15 times, a multiple of 15 times, we're not that far away. That's 6.5% below where we are right now. We can do that in two days. We've been doing that recently. Mm -hmm. So I'm not suggesting that this is the place to buy, but it can be comfortable. We can be comfortable at a level, as Jeremy Siegel said, that's not too far down from here. Well,
2: the problem, Liz, is that if I ask you, what's the right price for stocks? You can't answer because you don't know. No one knows.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: What's the right price of earnings? Can't answer that. Mm-hmm. You don't know, no one knows. Is the multiple down enough? Down to 16 times from 21 and a half at the start of the year, is that enough? Can't know that question before you know the other questions which are unattainable right now. Yeah. That leads to the uncertainty that markets traditionally hate, and that's what we're in the middle of.
6: Absolutely, and I think this continues. but. Look, Friday was a a terrible day. Today looks to be another terrible day and on some level I welcome it because we had tried for a while to really confirm capitulation and try to confirm that we had gotten down as far as we were going to go. I want to just get it over with. So let's just have a string of bad days, maybe a couple bad weeks, get it over with, flush it out and then wait for the next set of data. But in this next few days here, I don't know that it's going to stop anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I think the question you have to ask is, how low does it have to go before it bounces? It's not necessarily what's the right multiple. It's what's the right multiple for it to bounce off of. And I think that there's still further to go for that.
2: So NASDAQ has given up 11,000 for the first time since November of 2020. We should just note that as I was just looking at it once again. And it's uh, still below that level. Here's the other problem, I guess you could say, Joe, is that if this is all about Fed, Mm-hmm. And trust, or lack thereof, because that's what the bond market is screaming. Peter uh, Bukvar of Bleakly, I thought, had a, a really succinct way of putting everything into perspective today. Bottom line, central bank passivity is getting run over, and they're losing control over the world's bond markets. The only way, only in caps, the only way they regain control is to get more aggressive, okay? Meeting starts tomorrow. They've telegraphed 50. Now expectations of 75 at the next meeting are increasing. Here's the problem with that. They telegraphed 50, which the market is suggesting isn't aggressive enough. And if they go 75 this week, it looks like they panicked to the market and to the CPI read last week. Mm -hmm. They can't win either way. Either they're even further behind the curve than some have suggested, or THEY PANIC AFTER A COUPLE OF FED MEMBERS, AND NOTABLE ONES, COME ON THIS NETWORK AND SUGGEST THAT 50 IS THE WAY TO GO NOW, AND THEN WE'LL SEE.
3: SO, I THINK MY RESPONSE TO THAT WOULD BE THAT WE ARE IN THE MIDDLE OF A OBVIOUS FISCAL AND MONETARY MISTAKE THAT WAS MADE IN 2021, AND WE'RE NOW PAYING THE PRICE FOR IT. AND THE CONSEQUENCE OF THAT HAS BEEN A DRAMATIC LOSS OF CONFIDENCE IN THE MARKET how do you reverse that confidence? You don't do it through a 75 basis point hike. You don't do it through a 100 basis point hike. You do it through inflation coming down. And that's why I think where we are now is that we have this market malaise and things have dramatically changed since Thursday afternoon. That last hour and Thursday afternoon was very powerful. The market technically broke down at that point. The vision became obvious that you could go back towards the February of 2020 high at 33.93. And ultimately, there's just this Overall lack of confidence in the institution of the Federal Reserve and the ability of fiscal policymakers to come in and be able to affect inflation. I don't even know that 100 basis points at this point is going to do anything well, obviously to inflation. Well, it's not going to do anything. They, they could height uh,
2: 200 basis so points. So it doesn't it, impact it, supply chain. It does one not. Bit.
3: So in, in, in that case, what you have is a condition in which markets have no confidence markets have liquidity being removed, and there's a, an effect of liquidity being removed. And that's where the places of the market where you have seen speculative excesses build, that has to be liquidated. It's happening right well, now in crypto, happening. and it's going to happen in real estate next.
2: So, Kerry, let's okay, the, the Fed, as far as we know, educated at this point, based on what they've told us, they're going to go 50. Now, what happens if they go 75? Again, this push-pull of being too slow and too far behind the curve. You've told us 50. The bond market says you're kidding yourself, right? Delusional to think that 50 is going to help with inflation. But if they go 75, they're like, now they're panicking. Now they don't know what to do because the CPI flies flies in the face of anybody who suggested that inflation had peaked. So what's the market going to do under that scenario?
5: I think the market would be relieved if the number was 75 you do the market is not happy yeah that's what I think I think the market would be relieved because it's very hard for Jay Powell to make the case that 50 seems to be enough to control inflation unless unless there is some way that he can convince people that the numbers he's looking at are beginning to show an improvement in inflation that we didn't see on Friday the fact that we didn't see it anywhere just across the board from yeah, you know, Obviously, fuel, rent, housing, uh, all sorts of commodities. Uh, uh, there was nothing good in the numbers. So I'm not sure what he uses to defend the 50. And 75, I think, will make people feel as if he's trying, they are trying to be more aggressive. Yeah. The market would like it, I believe.
2: Let's bring in our, our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, who's joining us now. And, and let's have you, Mike, uh, opine on this question. As to, I asked you, I think, in, in your last word in overtime on Friday, if we now have to reintroduce the idea of a Fed surprise. And I think you said something to the idea of somewhat. I mean, it certainly is maybe back in the, the conversation somewhere. What happens if the Fed uh, does 75 on Wednesday? Is the market going to be, feel better about that because they're finally getting the message? I mean, the bond market clearly wants more.
1: Yes. I mean, I'm not sure it matters tremendously. I My, my initial take would be that uh, the fact that they abandon uh, this kind of carefully cultivated idea that they can lead the market by the nose with their guidance uh, to, to these increments and, you know, doing it, Doing it Wednesday instead of doing it six weeks later, I don't think it matters. I always go back to one thing that Chair Powell said a couple of press conferences ago when he was pressed on just exactly how much effect they think they're going to have with the actual rate increases in 2022 on inflation. And he more or less said, look, our stuff operates with lags. It's not really that. They were trying to bet that they're going to get lucky alongside a, a natural moderation of inflation. So I think the market really wants some clear sight to the destination point a little more than they care about whether the 75 comes now or in july uh, or thereafter and i'm not sure you're going to get that either uh, because the range of potential outcomes just is very wide at this point and there's very little incentive i think for them to sound less hawkish unless they decide to point out all the ways that their guidance has already tightened conditions substantially. The housing market retrenching, mortgage rates at 6%. You can look at corporate credit a little bit. Obviously, uh, all that stuff is working in their direction. And honestly, that's what's an overhang on the stock market, too, is this sense that the Fed is perfectly fine with this. They want valuations down. Even with today's comprehensive, really brutal, lopsided selling, it's pretty orderly. I mean, it's not disarray out Mm -hmm. there, and it has been... For most of the year.
2: Here's the problem, I I think, in some respects, too, with with this whole conversation around the Fed. And I I read something over the weekend and um, frankly forgot who said it. This idea that jawboning, Mike, is like 99 percent of the Fed's work. Maybe that was Larry Summers or somebody I read over the weekend. Um, The problem at this point with that is that they jawboned about inflation with transitory. They were they were dead wrong. Powell made the mistake of, of answering Leisman's question at the press conference the way he did and intimating, without to, you know, saying it explicitly, but intimating that 75 basis points was off the table. That was another mistake. That was another mistake. The bond market is saying that was a mistake. So if, well, if 99% of the job is jawboning, but the market can't trust what you're jawboning about
1: and what comes out of your mouth, where are you left? I think the 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 75 basis point comment was, yes, the market reacted quickly to it and then completely went the other direction the next day. Uh, but he didn't say it's off the table. He said it's not under current consideration. And guess what? It wasn't under current consideration because he doesn't even have the full committee, uh, certainly at that point, on board for half percent increases every meeting. So he can't stand there and say, sure, 75, it's right in front of us next meeting. Now, that being that being said, I would argue that the Fed is kind of – exactly getting what uh, or the market is exactly hearing what the fed is saying which is we inflation is our only mandate right now it's our only job so as long as it stays where it is you're not going to get any change in policy here Um, yeah and and i think the reason the market has to worry about that is if the Fed makes good on its guidance and, you know, ultimately to get to retain credibility, you can't just say you're going to do something and not do it. You have to do most of it. Uh, and that's what's ahead of us in terms of rate hikes, uh, that it's going to lift unemployment and, and obviously wound parts of the economy that uh, are going to be collateral damage. That's the fear. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. We're really kind of coming into this at a very high level of nominal GDP growth. So it, it probably would take a fair bit to really wear that all down. But I think that's the fix that we're in right now. And by the way, you know, Joe was saying we're, how far down we got to go to get to the pre-pandemic high. We're now at levels first reached January 2021. Uh, you know, you're not back to the 2020 election level. So, I mean, it's it's still uh, a market that's given you like 12 or 13 percent annualized for both mm, three yeah. the past three and five years.
2: You know, and to Mike's point, Joe, it, it, it is, if you want to use the word orderly, it is. Um we're a couple hundred points off of the low on the Dow, right? Dow's down 2%. Um feels horrendous, obviously. And you give <laughs> up 11,000 on the Nasdaq, which has already suffered significant pain, so I can understand why people feel the way they do today. Um but put into perspective I guess a little bit of what Mike said about how the market's trying to get its arms around whether it believes that the Fed can do this or not. And I feel like those those doubts are escalating as the market continues to go lower.
3: And that's why, to my comments previously, I think the biggest concern for the market is just I I don't think there's a, right now, uh, degree of confidence in any regard, whether it's from fiscal policymakers or obviously – on the part of the Federal Reserve that they're going to be able to affect inflation. They're just too late right now at this point. And and to your comments that the market is declining in an in an orderly way, I, I see that, but the frustration is is that any form of bounce or recovery has been a false start. The buy the dip mentality of the last several years is is no longer present in the marketplace. So it presents a challenge for investors. You see a day like today where markets are down so much. How do you react to that? How do you respond to that? My advice would be maintain emotional balance. and quite candidly at the end of the day, pick one stock, one stock that's on your list that you want to be in just so you feel as though you're participating in the, the decline and buy that one stock, but don't go beyond that. Well, you have to allow this malaise and this process to to unfold over time time Scott time sorry time is the only solution to this Carrie
2: am am I um, looking at this correctly that you you bought back Autodesk Twilio and PayPal is that right on the other side of some tax loss harvesting you're doing
5: yeah so we sold some names and we're buying uh, we're buying them back because we think that these are attractive prices Uh, you know again uh, We can't pick the bottom, but what we know is these stocks are down a tremendous amount. I mean, we're talking about, you know, kind of 45 to 75 percent from their, um, you know, 12-month high. And there's no reason that when we look forward over a year or two, we don't see much higher stock prices. So we give people tax losses. We take, you know, we take a little uh, risk on when we've been trying to reduce some of that risk. And that's what people pay us to do think through what's going to work for them over the next few years. And so we made some of those um, mo- moves, you know, the last few weeks and today.
2: Yeah, Mike, you know, I, I'm looking at other names and, and wondering uh, how much more do these stocks like Apple and Microsoft, my Centoli's still with us, right? Yeah. Yeah? Right. yeah. Oh, there he is. OK, I just wanted to make sure I didn't see in the box. I didn't know if you uh, you left. <laughs> Uh, Apple and Microsoft, right? I mean, these stocks continue to go down. You'd like to believe that there needs to be some stabilization there before the, certainly the NASDAQ can find its footing, right?
1: Well, yes. Mathematically, that's a necessity. Uh, it's not really the center of things today, I wouldn't say. Um, obviously, you know, we're down 9% in the S&P from, like, Tuesday. Uh, so clearly everything is down, and the big stuff's down along with it. Uh, that's where you still have a little bit of the valuation juice. I think a lot of that premium that built up in those stocks were based on the premise. Of course, these are great companies. They're the winner in the new economy, but also, and yes, yields were low and you could pay up more, but also the idea where there was some perceived predictability there where it was, well, these aren't going to go down 30% in a few months, or if it's Netflix 50% in a few months, or Amazon, and it did. And so I think some of that could still bleed away. Look, energy's down today. Materials are down today. It seems like one of those things of let's turn some stocks uh, into cash for now and and we'll see if this is just a you know maybe a, a, a kind of a retest of what we saw in may and if things get overdone in the very short term we'll see how it, uh, it plays out from there well
2: i appreciate you being with us mike i'll see you in overtime yep. a little bit later on that's right. mike santoli our senior markets commentator liz so mike wilson of morgan stanley as bad as the market feels to everybody and as much as it's already you know corrected from its highs he says 3400 is where you're going. That's where it's headed before a more tradable low because um, there's not enough. The slow slowing the slowdown has not been fully priced in and the risk to earnings that exists. Is that right?
6: I think that is right. And that number would take us almost to 30 percent down from the highs in January. If we're not going into a recession, usually you see a correction somewhere between 20 and 30 in the S&P, so that would feel right. We don't quite get to 30. But here's the problem. Between now and the end of July, we don't know if we're in a recession or not. So the market is gonna have to continue to try to find that. And we're waiting for, obviously, a big Fed meeting this week. And let's not forget, we're also gonna get the summary of economic projections. And we're going to get a dot plot. And I think that we're going to get a lot of information out of that where they raise the expectation for what the Fed funds rate will be. They might lower GDP forecasts. They might raise inflation expectations. And I think the market is going to have a hard time digesting that. They, they might do There's, all the
2: above what you just said. I might. was waiting for you to get to choice D, which was all the above. Because it sounded like that's where you were going. <laughs> you stopped going. me. You Instead stopped of they might, they might they, might, they might. It's like, nope, they will, they will, they will.
6: They, and, and if they do all of that, we might get pretty close to going down 25%, right? But again, I welcome that. Let's just flush it out. Let's flush it out in June. Let's wait for this next meeting. Let's wait for the next meeting. GDP, another CPI print. And let's also not forget that food and energy is about 22% of Mm -hmm. CPI. The Fed can't affect that. So that stuff is going to just take time or other pieces of news.
2: There might be a fair amount of chop um, before you get to the ultimate Wilson Liz Young level, at least according to Jonathan Krinsky. He joins us now. He's the market technician at BTIG. Is that right, Jonathan? Um, You know, it feels like we're heading in that direction, obviously, but it it may not be that straight line as as some are are looking to get to to have some sort of definitive uh, feeling on where we're going next.
7: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we've had thirty-four, thirty-five hundred 3500 as, as a downside objective as well. We had previously thought that you would actually would get that summer chop, which would largely be driven by a sector or momentum reversion. Typically, what you get is you get the laggards kind of getting a bounce and the winners or the, the high momentum stocks kind of get sold. And that kind of creates this. Uh, chop on the surface while you have those rotations and then ultimately everything kind of goes down together and that's what gives you that final washout. I think the risk now is is kind of what we're seeing in the last few days is that the beaten down low momentum stocks are just not able to find any support. And then now, over the last couple of days, you've had energy and some of the mega cap tech names, mega cap healthcare, kind of catching down to those names as well, and that's you know really what's driving the action in the last few days. So, you know, we still think you could potentially get a chop, but I think that you know the risk that we do just kind of have that kind of June swoon towards 3,400 is pretty elevated at this point. The the, uh,
2: the energy idea is interesting, as I said at the beginning, the XLE is down 10 percent or so, they're about, since just since last Wednesday you and others have maintained that it's only a matter of time. Uh, Even in the face of repeated calls from guests to continue to buy energy stocks. Because it's been like the place to be, it feels like even though it's just 5% of the S&P at this point, granted up from one, um, that it is a extraordinarily crowded area of the market now, uh, if in words, if nothing else, right? Everybody likes something, at the point you start to worry, well, maybe that's why I need to worry.
7: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We we kind of felt the risk reward was asymmetric there and that yes, it's showing the best price performance, relative strength, momentum, but it got to a point where it was about 35% as a sector above its 200 day moving average, which really is about as as wide as we've ever ever seen in 30 years of data. Um, And you look at the spread between energy being up at 1.60% on the year, versus the worst sector, which is consumer discretionary, down 30 percent. So that 90 percentage points of spread between best and worst is, is about as extreme as it's got, even if you go back to kind of the tech bubble peak. So we just mm-hmm. thought, you know, risk over is asymmetric. Energy should catch down to the upside. Again, the, the hardest question is whether you see some rotation, which would keep that summer chop scenario alive, or if you just see a liquidation of cash, which is what you're seeing yeah. the last few days. I
2: appreciate your time. That's uh, Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. Thanks, last Scott. comment for this segment to you, Pete. Uh, because it 's a good segue to you. you're you have a big big energy sure. position don 't you
4: yes i do it's a it 's a very large per, uh, percentage of what i 've got right now scott it 's about thirty percent still and by the way, I just actually bought more energy. I bought some shell because I saw some unusual options in there. You know I think that you know we have these these back and forth with energy right even when this, when the, when the price of crude is just sitting there, not doing a whole lot we 've seen some sell offs and we 've seen some some buying so I think What we're seeing now is just a little bit of that pause. And Mm -hmm. I think we're going to go on the next step to the upside. So I'm still committing more and more capital into the energy space, at least for now. Okay. All
2: right. Let's take that break. Coming up, the ETFs you need to watch today. Before the break, though, let's give you a check of the S&P sectors. Uh, I suppose we have to show it to you. It's not going to be pretty. It's red across the board, as you see. Uh, Consumer staples, the best of the worst. Discretionary is the worst. Back right after this.
9: And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. So much for peak inflation, it's going to be a long summer. The problem is that investors may not have the information on inflation they need to determine a bottom for many months. In the meantime, there is a proliferation of ETFs this year designed to provide some protection against inflation. Let's chat with the CEO of one of those funds. Christian Magoon is the CEO of Amplify ETFs. Christian, you started your inflation fighter ETF. I win is the symbol at an auspicious time, right at the start of February. Great timing. It initially attracted huge inflows, but it's been quietly sinking in the last week. What's in this fund? Why is it too starting to sink along with the rest of the market?
10: Yeah, that's a good intro, Bob, and you know, inflation has been on investors' mind. We certainly saw a lot of demand for inflation protection at the beginning of the year. Believe it or not, in the last month or so, it's kind of waned as many people thought inflation had peaked or it was transitory. Um, IWIN is an inflation-fighting ETF that owns a variety of assets, everything from commodities like soybeans or uh, corn or even oil uh, to commodity-linked stocks as well. One of the positions in it that hasn't been doing as well of late has been Bitcoin futures, about 6% of the portfolio, so that's dragged it down. We think overall inflation is here to stay for a while, and you want to own a yeah. diversified mix of commodities and commodity-linked stocks to protect against this risk. Yeah.
9: Yeah, this is the problem in a real down market, Chris. even inflation hedges all drop at the same time. I've got to ask you about the growth part of your portfolio. You have a transformational data-sharing ETF, BLOK block. It was a huge hit last year. It attracted enormous inflows. But it's mainly consisted of equities focused on blockchain technology. So you own MicroStrategy, CME Group, and it's tended to move with Bitcoin. With Bitcoin at a new low today, so is your block, BLOK. Your thoughts on crypto here and on that block ETF?
10: Yeah, we remain bullish on blockchain technology. Remember, crypto is just one application of blockchain technology, probably the most public and followed but there's many other types of blockchain technology that are emerging uh, for third party transactions so we think over time blockchain is still very promising a great area to invest in for growth minded investors but it's not without volatility so if you believe in the future of blockchain and crypto it's on sale right now you can buy that at a pretty big discount uh, versus last year we think this is a long-term trend that will continue into the future
9: yeah, down 7% today, new low. Much more on inflation fighting ETFs coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Christian's going to be joined by Mike Aikens. He's the CEO and founding partner of ETF Action. And Dan Egan is Betterman's vice president of behavioral finance and investing. He's going to update us on some very important new trends he's been seeing in home buying. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this.
0: Welcome back. I'm Christina Parts in Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet will not seek a new fourth term, citing a desire to return to her native Chile. The news comes after a, ten- a tenure that is being overshadowed by criticism of a response to China's treatment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. Bachelet's current term will end on August 31st. The Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol began its second hearing this morning. Today's session focuses on what was happening in the White House in the weeks leading up to the attack. Former President Donald Trump's former campaign manager was scheduled to testify, but he dropped out at the last minute after his wife went into labor. After regions across the Great Plains suffered punishing heat this weekend, much of the country could soon be facing blistering temperatures as well. We've got an estimated 235 million Americans that are set to experience temperatures in the 90s and 100s this week. Record highs could be shattered as the heat combined with humidity will make temperatures feel as hot as 110 degrees. Scott, I'm going back into my cave or something like that. not coming outside.
2: Cena, thank you. I'll see you later on. In overtime, that's just, uh, Christina Partsonevilos. Bitcoin. Let's revisit that. It is touching its lowest level since December of 2020. Our Kate Rooney is tracking not only the price action there, uh, but the fallout. Kate.
11: Yeah, Scott. There's a lot going on in crypto right now, shaking investor confidence. Bitcoin's drop started Friday after that inflation number. Analyst I'm talking to still see Fed policy as the main drag on that asset class right now. Roughly 200 billion dollars was wiped off of crypto's market cap. Over the weekend, the total value of that market fell below a trillion dollars, and there are some industry-specific headlines contributing to that weakness. One of the biggest crypto lenders, Celsius, saying last night that it's freezing customer withdrawals and transfers. There had been some speculation that it was having solvency issues, and for context, the firm had $11.8 billion in deposits and 2 million customers as of mid-May. And some big investors are involved here. For example, Canada's second largest pension fund participated in Celsius's uh, last equity round. And a bulk of its customers are retail investors. So they were brought in by an 18 percent yield offered by Celsius for just depositing their crypto. But there was not a lot of transparency about how they could offer that. We do know that they lend customer money out to hedge funds on the back end. Those borrowers here could be exposed. And I'm told Celsius put customer deposits into what are called decentralized finance protocols. So those are often tied to some of the smaller cryptocurrencies, which are getting hit even harder than Bitcoin over the weekend. Sources tell me the fallout here could be, quote, messy. This morning, one of the largest exchanges as well, Binance, pausing Bitcoin withdrawals about an hour ago. Binance saying that this was fixed, but it is still raising questions about how and why that happened. And Scott, all of this is hitting some of the stocks. Tied to crypto, Coinbase is down double digits. We had MicroStrategy seeing even bigger losses down 17% at this point. Block and Robinhood also getting hit. Back to you.
2: Kate, thank you. Uh, In fact, I'm looking at Robinhood right now, which hits a new low today. 702 was the low today. It's bounced off of that. It's at 744 now, but nonetheless from 85 to 7. Joe, I guess one of the issues here is the amount of leverage that's in the crypto system that we still don't really know about No, is potentially troublesome.
3: Very troublesome. And I think the, the, the correlation is the move in yields that Pete was talking about at the top of the show because the cost of capital, which was basically free in 2021 and financed a lot of that leverage, obviously is now rising significantly, and and that's going to lead to an environment where you're going to have to see there be some form of liquidation. And I think you're in the process of that now. I I saw our friend Anthony Scaramucci this morning on Squawk Box. He he made a a wonderful, very thoughtful, intelligent, fundamental uh, reasoning as to why blockchain technology is ultimately going to work, and I agree with him. But I think just because blockchain blockchain technology is going to be additive and it's going to work, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin has to go to 100,000 it could work and Bitcoin could be priced at 35 or 40,000. So I think people equate the success of the technology mm-hmm. with a much higher price. I'm not sure that's correct. But well, what,
2: what am I supposed to do with this issue, Liz, of the leverage um, in Bitcoin to the degree of which we, we just really don't know? When a asset class, as this is, uh, suffers the amount of deterioration as this has, mm-hmm there has to be somewhere in the system uh, an issue. How, how can the, the tide go out so strongly and everybody still have their suits on? I just don't see how that is, is possible. <laughs> we know about leverage from some who have to reveal it. And, and the, I'm just thinking about the kind of margin calls and just the ripple effects and what they're ultimately going to, to be.
6: Well, look, it... It exacerbates moves on the downside, right, the leverage that's in the system, and that will continue to happen. I don't think everybody still has their suits on. I think that there are a lot of people who have lost a lot of money in crypto and maybe were over allocated to it in the beginning, thinking that it was bulletproof in an inflationary environment. We're finding out now that that's not the case. The risk here in this asset class is that it's still so new. We don't have history to look at. We don't have the luxury to look back at it and try to figure out what's the right place for it to be trading at. How should it act in these different macro environments? And we're still in price discovery phase. So what you do with it is you expect that you're gonna have swings. And you don't put the money that you need to pay your mortgage in it. You use it on the periphery and you watch and you learn about what's gonna happen over the next few years as regulations come in.
2: Yeah. Kate Rooney, am I told you have, you have some more?
11: Hey, Scott, that's right. Another major crypto company, BlockFi, just announcing that it's laying off roughly 20% of its employees. The CEO here, Zach Prince, saying in a tweet just now, he says, this morning we announced after taking significant time to plan and consider reducing headcount by roughly 20%. We've seen this as we've seen market volatility in crypto, others really scaling back and freezing hiring. But BlockFi is a competitor to the company Celsius I just mentioned, and one of the more high-profile bigger names in crypto, but the effect here that we're seeing of crypto markets really crashing is a lot of these companies needing to scale back, cut costs, BlockFi, the latest example.
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for for that update there. Uh, Carrie, I know you have to run. And before you do, I'd like you to give us some of your your thought on on what's happening in crypto and and how you're thinking about it from a a, a bigger picture standpoint, you know, irrespective of the uh, the price of Bitcoin itself.
5: Well, it's interesting. It's a new asset class, and we all know that, and we've heard about it, and there are people who understand it much better than I do. Um, I think Anthony is a great spokesperson for the entire asset class, but it is a speculative asset. And so what we're seeing, by and large, is this repricing, pricing down of speculative assets that have experienced an enormous attraction to investors, whether those investors really understood them uh, thoroughly or not. And it's not just the complexity of knowing what Snowfly, Snowflake or CrowdStrike do, which are companies and you can read about them uh, in, in many locations, but understanding Bitcoin, it's it's further complexity. And it was promoted as sort of a, a salvation, a, a safety net and a, a hedge against inflation, which it hasn't been. It has gone down just like the NASDAQ. And with the layers, as you said, of uh, the leverage and the margin, it makes this more complicated and, and I think, somewhat uh, treacherous right now. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel as if it will it will survive and we'll have this kind of leveling off and stabilization when we get through that. But we're not through it now.
2: Yeah. Um, Carrie, again, thanks for being here. I'm going to let you go. And I know we'll see you again Thank soon. Thank you. Um, I also want to bring you some headlines that are being sent from our producers. Uh, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman is making some comments at a uh, Morgan Stanley conference. uh, Joe, Uh, Mr. Gorman saying that, uh, quote, no one can accurately predict where inflation will be a year from now. Chances of recession 50 50, uh, but unlikely to be, quote, deep or long recession, says Europe's economy is going to be slower than the North America region this year, quote unquote, for sure. Uh, also says that a sustained 20 percent down market, uh, the firm's wealth business, this being Morgan Stanley, of course, can still earn 20 to 25 percent margins and that the wealth business can reach 30 percent margins. You own Morgan Stanley, if I'm
3: right. I, I've right? owned Morgan Stanley for quite some time. So I like right. those last several so, sentences. So we got Right. So we got
2: two different levels of this conversation. Uh, Morgan Stanley, business impact, right. stock impact. Uh, Mr. Gorman and his own. Views uh, in the context of a couple of weeks where we've had the hurricane comments from Diamond, um, not so bad. I'm paraphrasing that, of course, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Bank of America CEO
3: as well. So, what I, do you think? I, I think a lot of it is reflected in the strength of the dollar in particular over the last four trading sessions, and that does become a problem for the rest of the world. Now, there has been a, a little bit of a, a small degree of outperformance in developed international and some of the select emerging markets. But if you're going to have a continued appreciation in the dollar, those asset classes are going to struggle. You're going to have a continued appreciation in the U.S. dollar if the environment continues to present itself as one in which we probably are in recession right now. So the most optimal scenario is, okay, we accept we're in a recession. Well, it's not so deep. That seems to be where we're at now here in June, where month, one month ago we were dismissive of it at all occurring. Well, we're not sure the recession's actually occur. Now it's saying we might be in it, it's probably going to happen, just not that.
2: Well, deep. even if we're not in it, it too many people feels like we oh, are. It certainly does. It, it, the feedback loop of that um, is significant. Pete Nigerian, you, you have some financial stocks. I mean, yeah. it, the, you know, look, Goldman Sachs is one of the only, I, I think, of like three stocks that you were even willing to buy this year. I'll come back to you, Joe, in a second for a move that yeah. you made in, in this space. But Pete, um, th- this, you know, these yep. comments from Gorman, um, what, what do you make of them? Um, they're uncertain for sure, um, yeah. but again, not a deep or long recession, at least is what he sees right now.
4: Well, that that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable, right? I mean, it certainly does for me that that's that's the outlook that he's got. It's a lot different from the hurricane comments, and it's it's somewhere a little bit closer to Moynihan as well as well. So. Um, You know what? We we know we're dealing with something that is really brutal. We understand it. We know that inflation levels and obviously food and gas and how important they are. I like Goldman Sachs still. Uh, You know, it's Scott. The reason I bought that particular company was it gives me great opportunities in a lot of different parts of the financial world. But on top of that. It also gives me opportunities in the option world for me, holding the stock, selling options against it. They have incredible implied volatility that allows me to be able to sell options against my position so that I'm actually, I'm able to at least withstand this push to the downside. Because I ended up buying this thing close to 312, and then here we are now down towards uh, 284. But I've also, before this week, I took in a little over 20-some-odd dollars in option premium. So that's why I do what I do with the options world is it gives me that luxury to be able to be in this stock, not be nearly as nervous because I've already sold it again, and I've got another $15 if, it's, if the stock stays under $300. So we'll see, but it's an interesting time. There's no doubt about it, and I think it just shows you that, Look at all the different views coming from some of the smartest guys in finance, and they're not all exactly the same. So we are seeing what everybody's view is right now. I think Morgan Stanley's view probably coincides with the way I view it as well.
2: Or at least how they characterize it, right? I'm not so certain that the views are all that different. It's just a way that they are, are being verbalized publicly in the way that Um, they're perceived to be as well. You have a comment? Yeah,
3: yeah, I do. If I could sprinkle in a degree of optimism, if that's allowed on a day like today. Yeah, of course, much needed. But but I do think in prior recessions, we've always been rescuing some balance sheet, whether it was a corporate balance sheet, companies, or whether it was consumers in prior cycles. I think in this recession, you have to kind of acknowledge corporations are in a pretty good place right now, like a Morgan Stanley. Their balance sheet is able to kind of endure through this environment. And I think consumers are in that position as well. You do
2: cuz that's where I was going to go as to whether they really are. If the consumer leverage has has gone up and up and up, right? Spend on credit cards, you get debt as a out percentage of,
3: of disposable income is at its best level in 20 years. So But rising. But rising. I'll acknowledge that, but still in a better place than it's been in previous recessions.
2: Hey Pete, l- let me come back to you real quick cuz I want to make sure we get this in. You want to do unusual activity here?
4: Sure. Yeah, we can do it if you want to yeah, right let's now. let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to start off with Deutsche Bank. We were just talking about financials. Deutsche Bank stood out for me because of the the put buying that we had, Scott. As a matter of fact, they bought 20,000 of the July 9 puts today for about 30 cents. What's interesting about that is they owned the June 10 puts, made money on those, sold those, rolled though to July 9th, and now looking for that as well. So, 30 cent option, stock was trading about 960 at the time. Secondly, I'm gonna go right back to energy. I'm gonna give you Suncor. Now, we had some buying on Friday, stock was higher, they were buying the 44 strike June calls. Now they're buying the July 40 call. So it's interesting, despite the fact that the stock has pulled off, I don't know, I, I'm not looking at the computer right now, but 4 or 5% from Friday, they still want to be in there. And we had a buyer of a little, close to 11,000 of the July 40 calls for $1.75. Stock was trading around 39 That's part of the reason why I'm still convinced that energy has at least some more upside to go because we continue to see certain names that pop up in the energy space with some unusual option calls to the upside. I mentioned Shell a little bit earlier.
2: Yeah, you did. I appreciate that too. Back to you, Joe, for a second because yep. I want to make sure we get this move in, in as well. And it relates to the
3: financials. You sold T. So I, I'm going to say something that I've consistently said in 2021 and is very frustrating for the viewers and for yourself. I was stopped out of T. row Price. Put a price stop in, I want to cut my losses. I am never gonna move away from the strategy, especially in a market that's in a decline, where I'm putting in stop losses. It saved me in Netflix, it saved me in DocuSign, it saved me in Walmart, it saved me in Starbucks. So I was stopped out of T Row Price. Okay. In addition to that, let's remember asset managers are a second derivative trade off of an improving equity market. Clearly, that call's been wrong in the last three days. So Unfortunately, I'm out of that position. All right. You also sold Nutrien. Nutrien has not worked. April 18th was the high. It's an agriculture trade. Uh, You know that I have been advocating for exposure in agriculture. I own Jar Deer. I own Archer Daniels Midland Nutrien. I also own Bungie Nutrien just never worked.
2: Okay, Um, Pete, the other thing that we need to look forward to that we'll have in overtime uh, is Oracle. We still have earnings Mm -hmm. from very large businesses who give you a good read on enterprise spending. And, you know, what was an NVIDIA then became a Salesforce now becomes Mm -hmm. an Oracle. Uh, I don't remember if you maybe you've owned this stock in the past, but how do you view the importance of it, given the unsettled market that we're in?
4: Well, I think what makes it so important is the timing, right? I mean, here we are now, after we've already gone through the majority of the earnings season, and now we still get to hear what they have to say about where things are, at least a little bit closer to what we, you know, than than an Apple, than a Microsoft, and some of those names. So it makes it pretty interesting. It's going to make me much more attentive, obviously waiting to hear what you guys have to say and what those numbers really look like and what Oracle has to say and some of the interpretations from that. So it's going to be, I think, very informative of where are we right now, and that's why I think it's going to be very important. It's why we ought to, just to plug you a little bit, it's why we ought to come into overtime and watch it because I think that's a very important call.
2: There you go, Pete. I appreciate that. Uh, The other interesting thing today, um, it's interesting to see where the calls are on a day like this. Who's willing to step in front of anything, uh, which feels like a steamroller, Gutsy. and grab a, a, a bullish call. But Micron, Liz, is reiterated a top pick at UBS. They did cut the price target. I bring it up to you, and I know you, I know you can't speak about the individual stock itself, but but the semis. Yeah, It's hard to be bullish right now on the semis, isn't it?
6: It is. I wish I wish I could say I was, but I'm not and I haven't been for a while. I think that there's still a lot of headwinds for semis. I think that we started to watch semis as an indicator of cyclicality in the market. We kind of stepped away from transports and started to watch semis. I don't know that it's going to work that way for this period of time because semis are guilty by association in the growth trade. If I had to buy something in technology, I'd be buying software, particularly cloud software.
2: Oh, you would? Okay. So you'll be looking at uh, these Oracle results uh, after the bell. That'll be interesting to see there. Um, Pete, you actually own Micron.
4: Yeah. It's hitting a 52-week low today. That wasn't good. But I can tell you it's been a multi-year hold, so I'm still actually feeling okay about where I am. And, And I can tell you this. What I loved about what the call was here was... They were talking about some of the DRAM pricing and how strong it is. They were also talking about NAND and how they are now becoming the leader. They also talked about the cloud space. So I think the combination of all of those are why they're stepping up to the plate and why this is a top pick still and for Micron right now is a top pick for UBS. So I think... I think there's a lot of reasons why it makes a lot of sense. You look at the balance sheet as well. It's pretty phenomenal, quite frankly, and the free cash flow. A lot of reasons to like this stock, despite the fact that in the background, we do have a lot of different things going on that are going to pull the markets lower.
2: Joe, Chipotle was nearly $2,000 within the last year. It is now down to Mm $1,248. You sold it on May
3: 16th. I did. Glad that I did. Uh, It's best in breed in terms of quick serve. It's a name that ultimately will recover. Listen, again, back to sprinkling in some degree of optimism. Better times are ahead. At some point, David Tepper will be nibbling on stocks once again. That's one of the best indicators there is in the market. I follow that for sure. That'll happen at some point, and Chipotle would be a name that I'd go back in and buy. But right now, I can't do that.
2: I mentioned it because it was reiterated as a buy today at at, at UBS. The target remains 2100. Wow, Um, that's a long way off. Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, it was at 1958, $1958.55 is the 52-week high. Let's, uh, let's update everybody on where the markets are, uh, if we could right now, because we, um, you know, we, we're down about 500 and something on the Dow after being down 800 and something, and now we're down 600 and something. It's 665 is the current loss on the Dow. We uh, were again below 3,800 on the S&P, but we did put in new intraday lows for 2022 today for the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the, the NASDAQ 100. I mentioned to you, we're gonna have full coverage in overtime, of course, just three hours from now. Joining me today, Lizanne Saunders, Ed Yardeni, Eric Johnston, Rob Sechin, among others. Oracle's numbers hit the tape, we'll have that. The latest stock move there. Implications for enterprise spend along tech, especially given what tech has done lately. So we hope I hope you'll join me there and we can uh, try and figure all this stuff out, see where treasuries go here, uh, too. We have an interesting uh, a guest on today uh, in overtime around uh, Treasury ETFs, too, uh, which is an interesting day to launch some new products. Uh, whether they're right for your portfolio or not, we will we'll discuss after the bell. Let's do some final trades and reflect on what we're what we're seeing today. Liz Young, why don't you go first?
6: This is about as short-term as I'll ever get. Final trade today is cash. I would sit Mm. on the sidelines, wait this out, especially past the Fed meeting. This is not a time to chase it around.
2: And you still think, do do you still think that we can have a good second half of the year? Or have you tempered that and pulled it way back?
6: Relative to the first half, remember, we're still in the first half, right? <laughs> relative to the first half, we can have a better second half. But it's not going to happen early in the second half. We might well, need I mean, to get through July. Getting punched in the
2: face feels better than getting, you know, <laughs>
6: That's true.
2: That's true. in <laughs> the gut.
6: I'll, I'll take any win <laughs> I can get things. at this point. Yeah, but I think it can be better than the first half. I mean, yes. Because you made the
2: case that you thought we could actually finish positive on the year. I I mean, it's possible. Well, look at the swings
6: that we see in the market on a weekly basis. It's not out of reach to finish positive. But look, I wouldn't be excited about 2% up, right? It's not going to be rip your face off positive.
2: I mean, I think a lot of people would be pretty darn (laughs) excited about 2% up, given where we are now, don't you? Yep. Yep.
3: All right. Well, let me help you out with something. Since 1939, there's been 20 midterm election years. From the date of the midterm election to June 30th of the following year, the market's never been lower. Hmm. That's something to gain a little confidence. Well, I can't wait
2: till we start to, to game out the, uh, the midterms and the impact on the market be fun. around the Fed and, and everything else, right? Because you get June, you get July, then there's no August, then you get September, and then you get that into the fall around the election, too. Pete, what's your final trade here?
4: I'm going to give you SLV. I saw some call buying in there. I've been waiting to see when they're going to finally come back to silver. They haven't in a long time. They're buying huge calls out there in the August twenty strike, Scott. I'm in those as well.
2: You are no no gold, Pete. What about the uh, you know the miners, junior miners, got, things you used to buy before?
4: Yeah, I am long GLD, but that's the only thing I'm long. in the well, that's not true. In the gold space, I actually have one individual, but just with calls, I am not uh, any deeper than that. So I've got a little bit of exposure in gold, but I like seeing the SLV paper very just. Minutes ago, hitting. So I, I was texting and buying that just now.
2: Yeah, uh, I do want to touch on the Nasdaq one more time too, because uh, we did give up eleven thousand uh, for the first time in quite some time. Nasdaq's down more than four hundred points, four twenty. Uh, it's just startling to see a three and three quarters percent loss. And names like Apple. I'll check real quick for you before we get out of here. Uh, one thirty three. It's two and a half percent. I'll see you in a few hours. I appreciate your time today. I'll see you then. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
8: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.